Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll talk with Bob Keeling about his latest book, Elvis Ignited, The Rise of an Icon in Florida. He played more Florida shows in that transformative year, 1956, than any other state in the country. And that's why I call Florida Elvis Presley's breakout state. We'll discuss an 18th century trading company that did business with Native Americans in Florida. Pent Leslie and Company really kind of formed a monopoly over the, the Indian trade in the southeastern U.S., but that didn't mean that they had complete control over all of their resources. And we'll talk about new research on Zora Neale Hurston. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Well, since my baby left me, well, I found a new place to dwell. Well, it's down at the end of Lone Street that... Heartbreak Hotel was the first Elvis Presley song to sell one million copies. The song was written in half an hour in the Jacksonville home of May Axton in the summer of 1955, and the demo was recorded the same day. That's just one of many stories about how Florida was involved in the success of Elvis Presley. Bob Keeling is author of the book Elvis Ignited, The Rise of an Icon in Florida. Elvis Presley, I think unquestionably, was the Johnny Appleseed of nascent rock and roll in the peninsula. And when you have guys like Graham Parsons and, and Tom Petty, they get the chance to meet or see Elvis up close and all of a sudden they become uh, just transfixed and it becomes a singular mission to become artists. And they did, they became great artists. It's almost like Elvis is the guy who threw the pebble in the water and all of these ripples still resonate to this day. And the 1960s, it's amplified even more when the Beatles come on the scene. But it's no accident that I would say Central Florida was the cradle of great guitarists in rock and roll. Um, and you can trace it back to Elvis. Elvis Presley played more concerts in Florida in the mid-1950s than anywhere else. Keeling shows how Florida played a pivotal role in Elvis's meteoric rise to fame. Tom Parker had some very deep roots here, the man who became his Svengali-esque manager. And Parker was the one who arranged for Presley to tour Florida early on. When he was on Sun Records, distribution was spotty. Elvis was the guy who said ambition is a dream with a V8 engine. He wanted to expand his career, his reach, and this was the way they did it. They brought him into Florida. They brought him into these outer lying states. And because Parker had so many connections here, uh, Elvis did four tours of Florida in 55 and 56 
before he ever even went on the Ed Sullivan show. By the time he did that, he was already splitting time acting and his days performing here were over. And we're lucky here in Florida to have had such an intimate and up close experience with him as he's barnstorming the state. And each tour is a different phase in his career as it's starting to really explode onto the national scene. So the first two tours in 55, he's basically a nobody. He's way down the bill, but he's gaining confidence. He's getting a lot of notice. Tom Parker decides, okay, this is the guy I want to represent. And thanks to Parker, he was able to get RCA to buy out Sam Phillips' contract with Elvis at Sun. And then by the time he plays Florida in 56, he is a headliner. And then Heartbreak Hotel comes out, goes to number one, sells a million copies. His first record comes out in the spring of 56, goes to number one. So by his last tour of Florida, where he's controversial and red hot, uh, he is an established national star. So his four tours of Florida really bookend his rise to fame. And as I've said, he played more Florida shows in that transformative year, 1956, than any other state in the country. And that's why I call Florida Elvis Presley's breakout state. Compared with the sexually suggestive choreography of some popular music stars today, Presley's gyrating hips, shaking legs, and trademark sneer seem quaint. In 1956, however, many found Presley's movements on stage to be scandalous. The singer had been nicknamed Elvis the Pelvis. I don't like to be called Elvis the Pelvis, but uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the most childish expressions I've ever heard coming from an adult. Elvis the Pelvis, but uh, uh, if they want to call me that, I mean, there's nothing I can do about it, so I just have to accept it. It's like you got to accept the good with the bad, the bad with the good. You have to put on a show for people. Yeah. In other words, people can buy your records and hear you sing, and they don't have to come out to hear you sing. You have to put on a show in order to draw a crowd. Yeah. If I just stood out there and sang and never moved a muscle, the people would say, well, my goodness, I can stay home and listen to his records. That's right. But you have to give them a show, something to uh, talk about. Now, in this show, it, we've established that it is a show that you put on. Now, how did you get the idea for the rapid amount of action? Did, have you ever, have, never seen anybody move around as much? No, sir, I never have. Uh, I just you never uh, had any old showman advise you you ought to do it? Nobody has ever told me. Uh-huh. Where is the first time that you used the the rapid My very action. first appearance uh, after I started recording, I was on a show in Memphis where I started doing that. And I was on a show as an extra added single, a big jamboree in an outdoor theater, an outdoor auditorium. And, uh, and I came out on stage and I, I, was, I was scared stiff. Mm-hmm. It was my first big appearance in front of an audience. Mm-hmm. And I came out and I was doing a fast type tune, uh, one of my first records. And uh, everybody was hollering. And, I didn't know what they were hollering at. Everybody was screaming and everything. And then uh, I came off stage and my manager told me that uh, he was hollering because I was wiggling my legs. Mm-hmm. And I was unaware of Who was your manager at that time? Bob, Bob Neal. Bob Neal, okay. And, uh, and so I went back out for an encore and I, uh, I did a little more. And uh, the more I did, the wilder they went. Before Presley's shows in Jacksonville, Reverend Robert Gray of Trinity Baptist Church said that Presley had achieved a new low in spiritual degeneracy. Presley was insulted by the accusation. I was raised up in a little Assembly of God church. Uh-huh. And some uh, character called them holy rollers. Oh, I see. Uh, 
Well, and, dude, and, and that's where that got started. I, I always attended a church where people sang, stood up and sang in the choir, and and, uh, and worship God. You know. Uh huh. And I uh, I have never used the expression holy roller. Do you still attend church? Uh, every opportunity I get, I'm, I don't have as much uh, opportunity as I used to because I'm on the road most of the time. In the Holiness Church, do they have peppy music? Peppy music? Mm -hmm. They sing uh, hymns and spirituals. They sing spiritual songs. Do they sing them at fast tempo? Uh, yes, sir, they do sometimes. Mm -hmm. And uh, do you think you transfer some of that rhythm into your... That's singing? not it. Uh, I, 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 that's not it at all. They, they was. There was some article came out where I got the jumping around from my religion. My religion yeah. has nothing to do with what I do now. Uh huh. Uh, because uh, the type of stuff I do now is, is not religious music. Um, and uh, my, my religious background has nothing to do with the way I sing. Elvis Presley spoke with Bob Hoffer backstage at a concert in St. Petersburg on August 7, 1956. Younger people may look at Elvis and wonder what all the controversy was about, but Elvis did upset many in the establishment. Bob Keeling. He did. He was he was kind of a square peg, and especially the fellow artists really didn't quite know what to make of him. And some of them would say, son, you got to settle down. That's kind of dirty, you know, fair and young being one of them. But he saw the reaction of the girls in the audience, the crowds in general. And he said, as long as they keep coming and they keep reacting that way, we're going to give them what they want. And that's what he did. And uh, it, it also can't be forgotten, his tremendous talent, his genre-breaking voice. He could do anything. He could sing the phone book if he wanted to. And that really is the, you know, that, that is the bedrock for people's interest. And you, you sort of separate the pretenders from the contenders by billboard success. And certainly Presley had that as well. After serving in the Army, Elvis returned to Florida in 1960 to record a special with Frank Sinatra, and in 1961 he filmed what is generally considered to be his best movie, Follow That Dream. Follow That Dream is based on a novel called Pioneer Go Home. Tom Parker followed his dream in Florida. This was a serious thing to him. Now the movie is a bit tongue-in-cheek, and it's a bit corn-pone, but Parker, this was a serious story about coming down to Florida and staking his claim and um, getting out of prison and, and having to rebuild his life, and boy, didn't he. So uh, Follow That Dream was based on this novel, Pioneer Go Home, where there were some folks who claimed squatters' rights to attractive land under a bridge in southwest Florida, and that's what the movie is based on. And if you watch it, maybe it's not Elvis's greatest film, but it's regarded as one of his, his better efforts, and there's some good acting in it. And I think the best part is you just have all of these wonderful images of Presley, still young, still vibrant, still in full range of his, of his talents, and he's going through all these beautiful old Florida scenes. The Inverness Courthouse, where the big climactic scene is shot there, and he's celebrated there to this day and when they went to renovate that courthouse, they actually used some of the images from Follow That Dream to be able to renovate the courthouse. So um, that's a great place to commune with the spirit of Elvis. In all of his books, Bob Keeling explores the lives of people with strong Florida connections who had a significant impact on popular culture. Keeling has written about Beat Generation writer Jack Kerouac in Florida, 
innovative country rocker Graham Parsons, and the queen of Tupperware, Brownie Wise. His book about Wise is being made into a film. Pre-Disney Central Florida history has been a rich vein that I've mined now for over 20 years, and I absolutely love it. And I think the reason why I decided to do it is this perception of when I moved here 25 years ago that, oh, you're in Orlando. Oh, theme parks. And I mean, that's great. You know, they're our number one employer. Uh, They're an economic engine. But as we know, there's so much more here. So, yeah. And and I had just been down to the Hemingway House in Key West. And I thought, wow, wouldn't that be fun to have something like that here? And now we have the Kerouac House in Orlando. And to have that sort of impact through the research is incredibly fulfilling and rewarding. And and I don't plan to stop. I already have another one in mind. But I'm going to keep it to myself right now. Bob Keeling not only documents Florida history and culture, he helps preserve it. He was instrumental in establishing Jack Kerouac's Orlando home as the site of an ongoing writers-in-residence program. He worked to make Derry Down, the Winter Haven venue where Graham Parsons got his start, named an historic landmark, and revitalized as a performance venue. He hopes his new book, Elvis Ignited, can be used to recognize historic sites associated with Elvis Presley. That's another conscious goal now is to try to leverage the research to root out and find these historic places that maybe have no recognition at all. I call it suburban archaeology, and that's really what it is. And I certainly hope with this Elvis book, uh, I think there could be a Elvis in Florida heritage trail, whether it just be online, whether it be physically. Uh, I've, I've identified three or four sites I think should have historic recognition tomorrow throughout the peninsula. And so I hope as, as this book spreads that there will be people who will be like-minded and maybe we can accomplish that. And maybe we get historic site number three, number four, number five. I, I'd like nothing better. Bob Keeling is author of the book Elvis Ignited, The Rise of an Icon in Florida. I don't be cruel to a heart that's true. Don't be cruel to a heart that's true. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, listen to archived editions of this program, watch the television series version of Florida Frontiers, and much more. You can also subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, today we're looking at some 18th century documents relating to the fur trade in Florida. 
Yeah, that's right, Ben. In the late 18th century, specifically the 1790s, this enters what we call the Second Spanish Period. Uh, After 1783, uh, Florida was ceded back to Spain from the British and began what we call the Second Spanish Period. But it also begins a period we call the Borderlands uh, Period. Now, this was when uh, Florida's uh, borders were essentially abutting the uh, newly created American territory. And within these uh, territories, both America and Spanish Florida, you had groups of indigenous people. Uh, tens of thousands of these uh, individual clans uh, made up of, of Seminole Creek, uh, Cherokee, and, and Chickasaw uh, indigenous groups living within and crossing all of these borders. That's what we call it the borderlands period because there are a lot of different characters and a lot of different players vying for power, vying for influence, uh, land, and also fighting with each other. So within a, a very short period from about the early 1790s uh, until about the early uh, 19th century, say about 18. 20, when Florida became a U.S. territory, kind of marks the end of that period. Um, we have a lot of, of jostling around for, uh, for again, for power within Florida and throughout the um, broader region of the southeastern United States. You have here some original documents from the Panton Leslie Papers in the Library of Florida History Collection. Yeah, that's right. The papers of the Panton Leslie Company uh, number about 1,200 individual documents, and, and they mostly deal with uh, business relations between the company partners and uh, some of their uh, traders who are working within the backcountry territories of, of Florida and the southeastern U.S., uh, and also talks a bit about political dealings in Europe. And uh, But within all of these documents, there are some really fascinating insights into uh, the inner workings of how the indigenous groups dealt with this external pressure. Uh, now, the, the native groups that lived here, the Seminoles, the Creeks, the Cherokee, the Chickasaw, these tribes did not leave a written language. So we don't have a lot of primary source material. So documents like these are, are exceedingly rare. In fact, the first one that we're looking at here is dated September 1st, 1795. And this is a transcript of a talk or a meeting between a Chickasaw chief and uh, he's writing to uh, one of the Creek headmen, a gentleman known phonetically known as as Mad Dog, one of the uh, Creek clan leaders. And in this letter, uh, they're, they're addressing, they're really speaking between themselves, which is also exceedingly rare. Oftentimes these talks are between uh, one of the trading partners and a Creek clan, but this is actually between two uh, indigenous groups. And they're talking a little bit about uh, some of the issues that are coming up between uh, the indigenous groups and the Panton Leslie Company. And I'll just read a quick quote here. Uh, now, this is one of the uh, Chickasaw leaders, a gentleman by the name of Wolf's Friend. And he says here, quote, Now it seems you have made a peace with the white people. And do you think you will love them better than you formerly did? If you think you can, it is then we poor red people ought not to destroy one another. But I defer it to you, your own thoughts and desires. You will not hide from me. You wanted to spoil people for a long time. And when men says they are men, I should think they would not care how many enemies they had. Now, it can be a little bit difficult to understand what they're saying here, but essentially what they're talking about is some of the infighting that's occurred uh, as a result of the increased pressure on hunting grounds. Now, Pant and Leslie, uh, they were interested in deer skins. That was the commodity that they were trading these indigenous groups for and bringing back to Europe. So what ended up happening is that they, once the deer skin became a commodity, there was a lot of infighting, and it kind of led to uh, inter-clan fighting. But that doesn't mean that the indigenous groups really had no agency, that they had no control. Pant Leslie uh, and company really kind of formed a monopoly over the the Indian trade in the southeastern U.S., uh, but that didn't mean that they had complete control 
over all of their uh, their resources. Now I have another letter here dated May 6, 1794, and this is actually between two of the uh, partners of the Panton Leslie Company, William Panton to John Forbes. And this is uh, sent from Pensacola again in May of 1794. And they talk a little bit about some of their business dealings. But at the end, there's kind of an interesting quote that I'd like to read uh, from the very end of this letter where William Panton says, um, he's asking uh, uh, John Forbes if he could do this for him. He says, quote, give my respects and asks the Spanish governor for permission to remove our cattle from where they are and fix them on the point on the west side of the river. My good friends, the Indians, make me pay too much for their grass where they are at present, and to drive them down to Florida is not so convenient, end quote. Um, so here, and, and it's kind of difficult to, to, again, because the Indians don't have kind of a written inventory like the Panton Leslie Company kept. We don't know what they were getting or what they were charging these Europeans to use their land. So uh, even though Panton Leslie Company had enormous capital, they had enormous uh, land, uh, they, they owned quite a bit of property, um, the native groups within the, the southeastern U.S., um, their major capital, not only was it deerskin, but it was also their land, and they could leverage that land uh, for different reasons at different times. Now, I'll read, uh, lastly, this is a, uh, a letter dated 1798, and this is another one of those talks between uh, one of the Creek chiefs. In fact, it's, it's one of the Creek uh, headmen who we first referenced in that 1794 letter, um, uh, who the Pant Leslie Company refers to as Mad Dog. Now, Mad Dog is uh, uh, talking to the Seminole Indians of Florida specifically. Uh, this is a talk he was hoping to get the, the four tribes together, the, the Creeks, the, the Seminoles, and, and the Chickasaw, uh, and the Choctaw tribes together. But unfortunately, the, the Seminole representatives did not show up. So he's sending this to Panton Leslie Company and says, please disperse this to the Seminole chiefs within Florida. He says here, quote, we'd wish the four nations to have been to the talk, but the Chickasaws only came, and we talked over all matters the same as if they were here. We took the Chickasaw fast by hand and hope that the master of the breath will assist us in preserving everlasting peace. We have talked all matters of hope, and our warriors, women, and children will live in peace. The path between the two is now white, long, and broad, and it is our sincere wish that it may never be bloody. So here you see that the indigenous tribes are actually appealing for some type of peace. So we, we get an indication that they're understanding the pressures coming from a lot of the Americans who are moving south into their territory, but also the Spanish and also uh, Indian uh, trading company partners like Pant and Leslie who are putting a lot of influence on these native peoples to try and capture and take their land in payment for these debts. Uh, but again, it's it's kind of a back and forth. So we see that um, Pant and Leslie uh, ultimately did acquire a lot of, of this property in, in payment for uh, a debt that they owed to the company. Uh, but there was quite a bit of back and forth uh, that occurred, at least in, in this decade of the 1790s. Okay, great, Ben. Thanks. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa.
This is Florida Frontiers. Jill Jones from Rollins College is doing new research on Zora Neale Hurston. Robert Casanello has more. Jill Jones is a professor of English at Rollins College in Winter Park. I sat down with her to talk about her research on the writings of Zora Neale Hurston. Here's what she had to say. So anybody who's an Americanist is interested in Zora Neale Hurston. She uh, crops up again and again. Um, And when I came to Rollins, I realized she had a very specific connection with Rollins College. And I taught some of her work. I was also the editor of the Marjorie Canan Rawlings Journal of Florida Literature. And we got a lot of articles on Marjorie Canan Rawlings. We got a lot on Zora Neale Hurston as well. So I started reading more of hers. I got interested in the relationship between Marjorie Canan Rawlings and Zora Neale Hurston. I wrote a very short article on that, I think. At some point, I got involved in the Florida Humanities Council's they have a workshop for teachers that's national um, on Zora Neale Hurston, and I got involved in talking about pedagogy and teaching difficult things uh, with Zora Neale Hurston. Here I ask if the location of Rollins College near Eatonville and the college's association with Hurston inspired her to research Hurston's literary legacy. I do love her work, and I love some of her offbeat work, but I felt because I was at Rollins, I really fell down the rabbit hole, and new, new little Zora Neale Hurston tunnels kept opening up, and they were fascinating. So if I didn't live in Florida, would I have heard Stetson Kennedy and some of those recordings? I don't honestly know if I would have. Um, I certainly wouldn't have been involved in that teaching workshop. That influenced me a lot because I was teaching teachers how to talk about sweat in the classroom and it's difficult and some of these teachers were teaching middle school children and we'd talk about the difficulty of teaching dialect and the difficulty of talking about domestic violence and um, gender roles and can you really do that in the public schools Um, and it sort of solidified my belief that if we don't talk about difficult things then we're not really teaching you know, we're not teaching at the highest level. So I, I think I wouldn't have gotten as involved with Zora Neale Hurston as I did, probably. I wondered what inspired the writings of Zora Neale Hurston. I think everything that Zora Neale Hurston does is motivated by her love for community and for her community. And, um, and even some of the trouble she gets in politically, I think, um, has to do with her deep respect and love for the community and the sense that it has value already, that you don't have to um, be in Harlem and writing about, you know, art and literature at the highest level, that doing, um, doing the hoochie-coochie on the Jim Crow car, you know, on your way to St. Augustine is already a community and is already a community of great value, so... Um, I understand it better. I, I understand her love for it, for sure. I asked Professor Jones how she brings Hurston into the classroom. It really depends what I'm teaching of Zora Neale Hurston's. So um, with some of her work, I talk a lot about her actual craft because I think um, Zora Neale Hurston's work looks organic, right? It looks like it just grew that way. I think she's very clever, and she... Uh, sort of is a master of narrative tricksterism, if you will. So I really try to get them to see that she's working very hard to make them see things in a certain way and that she has to balance this sort of authority and authenticity in her particular case 
and some of the strategies, some of the rhetorical strategies she uses to do that. You can hear my entire interview with Jill Jones by going to the podcast, Every Tongue Got to Confess, or at communitiesconference.net. I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. You can also join the daily conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.